This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. And now we turn to Japonica Brown of Boston University. Japonica recently came out with her new book with the University of Chicago Press, How Place Makes Us, Novel LBQ Identities in Four Small Cities. Thank you for joining us, Japonica. It's great to be here. Tell us about your book. So the book is about um, the lives and communities and identities of lesbian, bisexual, and queer-identified individuals in four small U.S. cities, um, Ithaca, New York, Greenfield, Massachusetts, Portland, Maine, and San Luis Obispo, California. And I, I can tell you more if you're curious, but I set out to write a book that was about gentrification and why LBQ individuals continue to concentrate in these smaller cities that tend to be politically progressive, have a college or university, and lots have lots of natural amenities. But sort of midway through researching, um, or about two, two-thirds of the way through, I was sort of hit over the head by the degree to which the individuals I was studying in each of these cities were talking about who they were in terms of their sexual identity and difference in ways that were incredibly distinct um, from city to city. And so the book is exploring how and why there are these city-specific ways of understanding sexual identity and difference or unique sexual identity cultures in each place. Can you give us some examples yeah. or of, of how, how they're different? Sure. So in one city, San Luis Obispo, California, almost everyone that I talked with identified as lesbian, regardless of her past romantic or sexual history. Their social lives were oriented around other lesbians. Um, The lives that they were living looked to me sort of like lesbian community, as I'd always heard it described, but couldn't possibly actually exist anywhere. And then in Ithaca, New York, in total contrast, almost everyone I spoke with resisted identifying with their sexual identity. They were very out about their sexual difference, about, you know, partnering with another woman, um, for instance, but did not want to be thought of through the lens of sexual identity, wanted Mm. to be thought of in terms of professional identity or parenting, something related to life speed or you know, their work with composting education or their hiking or running. And so I argue that this is more of a post-identity politics orientation. And I'll, I'll stop there for now. But in each city, there was this very distinctive way of thinking about, you know, who one is and of interacting with those around oneself. Well, you know, Japonica, one of the things that I think is really great is that you stared away from like the, you know, the low hanging fruit of like Brooklyn, San Francisco, you know, yada, 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 like the cities that the big cities that everyone always studies. Right. Um, And and decided to focus on these smaller, uh, these smaller, like less uh, researched cities. And I wonder why, why did you decide to do that? So it was kind of an accident. My, my first book was about gentrification and two of the places that I had studied had very large LGBTQ populations. And one of them, Andersonville in Chicago, 
uh, was sort of known when I began fieldwork as the Swedish slash lesbian neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, when I arrived, there had just been this big debate in the community about what the the neighborhood streetscape should look like. The city was giving them money to redesign their streetscape and they were debating whether it would be a Swedish or a lesbian themed streetscape. <laughs> what does a lesbian streetscape look like? Yeah, yeah I was wondering. Well, that. Like, I can imagine a Swedish streetscape. Yeah. <laughs> that was their argument for going with Swedes instead of lesbians. Uh-huh. I couldn't figure out what it would look like. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, when I started field work there, I would you know, ask, you know, I was studying gentrification, so I'd ask people to tell me about how the neighborhood has changed, why do you think it's changed, and people would talk about the role of lesbians as change agents, mm-hmm. you know, no matter who I was talking with, that was front and center in their narratives about the neighborhood. But five years later, when I was finishing field work, gay men had started to move into the neighborhood in more significant numbers. And I was really struck by how narratives very swiftly changed to give those gay men nearly all the credit and blame for the gentrification that was happening. Mm-hmm. And queer women were sort of erased from the narrative. So as I was thinking about a second book project, I started to think, well, I want to understand more about the role of queer female populations and gentrification. And to do this, I needed to figure out where queer female populations concentrated. And there were these wonderful analyses of 2000 census data that said that actually lesbian couple migration was most oriented to these small cities with lots of natural amenities. These are actually places that are quite popular with retirees as well. And um, I happened to be living in Ithaca, New York, while I was reading these analyses. And this light bulb sort of went off for me. I thought, why are these individuals still concentrating in these cities? We have a story of lesbians migrating to places like Northampton, Massachusetts in the 70s and 80s, but how do we explain that sustained migration today? Mm-hmm. And what happens to these cities once these individuals move to them? How do they change them? So that's what I thought I was going to be exploring. Mm-hmm. One thing that I love is this idea of uh, identity really being mediated by place. And mm-hmm. What's the mechanism there? Like what makes a, uh, you know, what makes an, uh, like what's the process by which the Ithaca LBQ community is different from the uh, uh, Portland, like Maine? Portland, Maine. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So, um Ultimately, I spent, I can't tell you how much time I spent, A, first settling on the idea that it was cities that were shaping the identities. Mm -hmm. I I rely on what Jack Katz describes as a process of eliminating negative explanations. Uh And eventually I settled on cities as shaping these identities. And then I had to figure out what it was about the cities that was shaping identities. And ultimately, I say that there are three core mechanisms that are sort of loose bundles of elements of city ecology are at work here. And the first, and in some ways the most defining, is what I call abundance and acceptance, which is basically the proportion of the local population that identifies as LBQ, the degree to which residents feel safe and accepted. And and this includes, you know, um, hate crime rates, but also how many churches are welcoming institutions. And this really, this mechanism really directs people toward or away from identity politics. And the cities where 
LBQ residents feel surrounded by other people like them and safe and accepted, they're least likely to put their sexual identity front and center in terms of how they understand themselves mm. and how they make decisions about forging social relationships. Oh, but that's not the only thing that happens. I also suggest that place narratives are another crucial mechanism. So broader stories that the cities tell about who they are sort of instruct residents on who and how to be in a place, which is part of why two cities that look very similar in terms of abundance and acceptance um, nonetheless have really distinctive versions of identity politics mm. or a post-identity politics. And just to give a little example of that, you know, I described San Luis Obispo residents as identifying, you know, very clearly as lesbian. And in Portland, Maine, identity politics is alive and well, but it's a very different kind of identity politics. So I met individual after individual who had these very long hyphenated self-descriptions. Mm -hmm. important to them as the lesbian label in San Luis Obispo, but instead it would be like queer poly femme dyke, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, many different versions of this. So the last mechanism that is at work is what I call socioscape, which is basically the social characteristics of the place and particularly of the LBQ population. And this isn't working in the way we usually think about place demographics, shape and identity. So it's not about any major differences in the racial or economic or educational characteristics of residents but instead very subtle differences in those characteristics, like what kinds of elite liberal arts colleges the individuals I studied went to in one city versus another, mm -hmm. and the habits they develop in the place of talking about the significance of that kind of education. Hey, can I ask a clarifying question? So um, you said they sure. went to elite liberal arts schools, but you know some of these places um, you know, have big publics, right? So San Luis Obispo has Cal Poly which is, you know, yes. uh, kind of a middle-ranked California public institution. Um, did the residents you talked to, were they Cal Poly alums or had they gone to like Occidental College or something like that and then moved up north to San Luis Obispo? In San Luis Obispo, it was um, a mix in terms of the kinds of institutions that individuals went to. So Greenfield and Portland were really sort of the, the places where there was just this tremendous pool of people who had gone to small elite liberal arts colleges. Mm -hmm. San Luis Obispo, there actually weren't that many Cal Poly individuals in my sample. It was much more of a story of people migrating north from LA, mm -hmm. south from San Francisco, or coming out of the Central Valley trying to get to the coast, yeah. but feeling priced out of Santa Barbara and Santa Cruz, for instance. Yeah, I, I can see why. I've had that fantasy myself so about living up there. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good well, so Japonica, yes, so, so Japonica, so Gabriel's question actually kind of touches on my question, sure. which in thinking about, in thinking about what you were saying, like, I, you know, whatever, my mind goes in directions that are usually not related, but I think <laughs> could be related. So I was thinking, <laughs> I, yeah, so I was actually thinking about Jimenez's, uh, uh, immigrant replenishment um, thesis, right? And and I'm like wondering whether or not you know, sort of the type of the type of identity and the type of culture um, that 
that basically gets created among the um, the LBQ community, whether or not that also depends on whether uh, on I keep saying whether or not um, whether or not that depends on um, if you know that identity is mostly contained and informed by locals, right? So whether or not local means you went to you know, the liberal arts institution that's within the community and then you end up staying and becoming part of that community. Or um, if you come from far away because you've actually, I mean, you've heard about this community, you think that it might be a great place mm-hmm. to like live and be and, and be who you are, but you are coming in with these like different notions of what it means to be you and what it means to be L or B or Q. So that's a great question. And it's one I thought about a lot. And I actually don't think that that's sort of a, a big part of the story. Um, I found that most of the people had moved to these cities for reasons very unrelated to sort of the the narrow ways they end up thinking about who they are in terms of sexual identity. So they moved for a job at the university or they transferred from Boston to Portland for a new position. Many moved to be around family members or because a partner had an opportunity. And many, many, many had expressed surprise and sometimes disappointment about the identity culture they found in the new place. Sometimes they felt very constrained by the ways the people around them were identifying, but couldn't find a way out in terms of they felt themselves shifting after their move in ways they never expected. And then um, on top of that, many of them have moved from the same places. So, So there are lots of Brooklyn migrants in my sample, for instance. There are lots of people who've spent time in Northampton and Boston. I mean, down to like, very specific neighborhoods, Boston's Jamaica Plain. There were people certainly in all three of the East Coast places that I studied who'd all spent time there. And so I don't think this is a story of people moving, sort of knowing what identity is going to, they're going to find there, nor do I think it's a story of people transporting identities with them as they move. And I actually have an article with Jeffrey Parker and sexualities that's about how we argue that the idea that a place is lesbian friendly sort of masks this more subtle or nuanced understanding of what identity is actually going to be like on the ground in the city so that it's sort of enough to know that it's going to be a friendly place to live and that gets people Mm -hmm. there and then they arrive and they're surprised by the ways in which the place sort of asks them to adjust who they are. I really liked one thing that I really liked about uh, your your paper was this, you know, uh, this idea that uh, maybe we underestimate how central place is to uh, identity and maybe uh, tend to essentialize uh, the uh, LBGT uh, community and uh, maybe overestimate how central sexuality is uh, to their identities. I, I think that's right. And and I'm somewhat guilty of this. Myself. The first article I published out of this project was after I had done field work in Ithaca. And I wrote about how, you know, queer women moving to this city, adopting a post-identity politics orientation, then struggled with a sense of loneliness and a sense of loss of community. And I sort of surmised that this was a broad pattern that we would find in other places. And 
So I was guilty of thinking about LGBTQ individuals in this in the same way, I think. Um, the first article that I published from the project was based on fieldwork I did in Ithaca, which was the first site that I studied. And there I found a post-identity politics orientation among almost everyone that I interviewed. And I argued that this post-identity politics orientation created a sense of loss and loneliness. These individuals had moved to this place that they knew to be full of other LBQ individuals. And then because no one was identifying as lesbian, they felt like they couldn't find them. And I surmise that this was a broad pattern, that we would find this in other places. But then because I had studied these four cities that shared so many ecological traits and that had population groups that shared so many demographic traits, you know, the variation between them really called me out of that framework for thinking about queer identities in the contemporary moment. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury and Lisette Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>